Uh, last week, you know that our, in our look at sexual abuse, it became fairly apparent, if it wasn't already, how, how easy it is for people to be trapped under the weight of this particular sin of abuse and assault. Uh, the, me, the hashtag me too and the hashtag church too uh, doesn't just mean that people under those hashtags have had something similar happen to them. It also means that those who have been impacted by abuse and assault have also had common side effects. For those who have been assaulted, they routinely deal with emotional issues like shame and false guilt, like hurt and fear and anger, deep hurt. Some deal with identity issues. What does this say about me? If I did nothing wrong, why do I feel like there's something bad about me, like I'm a, almost an outcast. Many deal with relational issues. Who would I tell and how would they handle it? Or I have told somebody and somehow they made me feel responsible. There are developmental issues. An eight-year-old or a 16 or 24-year-old all deal with abuse in different ways. Some certainly have spiritual issues. Where was the Lord? And if he was there, why would he allow this? What does it mean to trust a God who allows things that are so odious in his sight and so damaging to me? There are even side effects for the one who might have perpetrated the abuse. Guilt, guilt that hangs on for years. I hurt her, I pressured her, I used her. And again, like I said last week, abuse can happen to males and, and does. Um, but maybe a fourth as often, and still males are still the primary perpetrators. 95% uh, uh, or so of it uh, is, is men. Um, issues of isolation. I, I couldn't tell anybody. I don't even know where to go with this. I know I can go to God, but, uh, but if I needed help, where would I go? Restitution. What could I do now? What if it's been years? Is there any value in my speaking to this issue and overall recovery. What is God's view of me and what is his future for me? We can't address all these questions, not just because of time, but we don't know all the answers. And frankly, every single situation is a little different. So all of us are appealing to God to say, Lord, how do I experience the set free in my situation? And, and that's a big, much bigger issue for those who have been on the receiving end of, of abuse, as you can imagine. In a manner of speaking, what we're really saying is, if, if assault has trapped me under a weight that I can't lift, what is it that God does that lifts it off of me? What is it that God does that I can see in the Bible that can actually set me free? In order to answer that question, I think what we have to start with is the gospel. So I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, where we'll spend just a few minutes. We have a couple of passages we're going to look at today, Colossians 2 being the first. And as we look at Colossians 2, we are, uh, we're just wanting to see a, a really quick picture from the Apostle Paul about the gospel. 
I'm going to read verses 13 and 14 from the New American Standard. Colossians 2, right after Philippians, verses 13 and 14. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he's saying before you were a Christian. That's just another way of saying before you understood and had believed the gospel. Um, that's important, by the way, because some of us grow up in traditions where we think we're a Christian because the home we were raised in talks about Jesus sometimes and sometimes goes to church. And so sometimes we think, well, I guess I'm born a Christian. I've always been a Christian since I was born. Or, or maybe somebody says, well, I was baptized when I was very young, and so that's when I became a Christian. But that's not what Paul's referring to at all. What he's referring to is that every person is born dead. And that's extremely important when it comes to the idea of being set free from the effects of, of sexual assault. I have to start with the recognition that I, I started out dead, dead in my transgressions and the uncircumcision of my flesh. And then it says, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all of our transgressions. He made you alive together with him. That means that the moment you believe the gospel, the minute you understood what it was that God was offering you in Christ, and when you said, I believe it. For me, it was October uh, 44 years ago in my college freshman dorm when a guy I was in a Bible study with, I just asked him, how come you guys, in my religious tradition, I had asked my priest how you could know you go to heaven when I was seven years old, and he said, you can't. But you guys talk about when we go to heaven, not if we go to heaven. How, isn't that kind of presumptuous? And he said, well, it's not presumptuous if the, if the Bible tells us that we can know. And I said, well, where does it do that? And he said, go get your Bible, which was the right answer, by the way. Always point back to the scriptures rather than someone's opinion. And he had me, with his help, because I didn't know the Bible well enough, he had me look up Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, where it says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not the result of works, lest any man should boast. And I noticed being at the time a dorky English major, that it says, have been saved, past tense, meaning it's already something you have. And I said, does it say this anywhere else? And he said, lots of places. Go to 1 John 5. I handed him my Bible. I said, you have to show me. He did. He took me to 1 John 5, 11 through 13, and in verse 13 it says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I was shocked. It was the best news I'd ever heard. And for reasons I can't explain, because they're ultimately in the mind and heart of God, I believed. I found out years later I'd actually heard the gospel several times in my life, but so far as I knew, at age 19, that was the first time I ever heard it. The simple offer of eternal life. And that's what he says when he says he made you alive together with him. He says, having forgiven all of our trespasses, the next thing that he says, uh, that's also what happened when you believe the gospel. 
Uh, that, that is actually what he offers. And, and I do want to say right now, before going any further, if in a, in a group this large, obviously we're a Bible-teaching, Bible-believing church, and so the vast majority of you are people who've already come to saving knowledge of Christ. Everything I just got through saying is old hat to you. But also in a group this size, it's not uncommon. In fact, it's ordinary that there would be people who would say, I don't think I've ever understood it that way. I never understood that I was really dead spiritually in my trespasses and sins, meaning that I was broken from God. I just thought I was just one of his kids. My pastor, when I was a kid, used to say, all of God's people, all of God's children. But what this says is that's not the case. It actually happens when I believe, and I just want you to know, you can experience you can experience being made alive together with him. You can experience having all your trespasses forgiven. You can do it right now. You don't have to stand or walk an aisle or do anything else. What you have to do is believe what God says. In, in John chapter 5 and verse 24, Jesus says, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment. You notice that? Grammar matters. He who hears my word, believes him who sent me, has eternal life, does not come into judgment, has passed, past tense, out of death into life. In other words, I'm telling you right now that believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for you and what he offers you gives you a gift that can never be taken away, the gift of eternal life. He said that, and therefore he's passed out of death into life. If today is the first day that you come to believe that message, I just encourage you to tell somebody. Be sure to tell somebody, because actually that's the point at which our Christian life begins. It's the foundation of being set free from anything we've been party to. He goes on to tell us, back in Colossians chapter 2, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What he's referring to is when a person was crucified, they would nail their charges up above their heads so that any passerby who would see him crucified see what they were guilty of. In Jesus' case, what the, the document that they put on his cross said, Jesus, the Nazareth, King of, the Jew, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And people told Pilate, no, tell him he said he was King of the Jews. And he said, what I've written, I've written. He didn't know he was fulfilling prophecy in doing that. What he was doing was he rightly assigned the reason Jesus was crucified. It was because he was in fact the king of the Jews, and it was in fact that he came as Messiah, the fulfilled promise of the Old Testament, and he came to bear your sins and he came to bear my sins, all of them. And that was the charge. But notice what he's referring to here. What he's referring to is the fact that you and I deserved a cross. There is a certificate of debt that every one of us, it's like an IOU to God that lists all of our sins, if you want to put it that way. When I was thinking about this, I immediately had a flashback to sixth grade. And in sixth grade, I remember right on the stairwell of our house, right on the landing, I, I called my sister a really, really mean and hurtful name. It was like a dagger. It, it was much worse than if I had used foul language. It was much worse than if I had yelled. The words were so cruel and cutting. I believe that was part of my IOU. That same year, sixth grade, I remember I hated this kid named Dane McJunkin, and I, I started a fight with him on the playground. 
and um, we fought. And I know that the hatred in my heart and my assault of him, I know that's one on my IOU. And then as happens in sixth grade, whenever you fight a guy, you become friends. And so Dane, Dane was the guy who rode bikes with me the day after school got out, and we popped the windows at our school with our BB guns. That's on my IOU too. <laughs> sixth grade was not a good year. But you see, all those sins then and before and after are part of a certificate of debt that I owe to God. But what he said here is, John, God canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of every decree against you which had been hostile to you. He has removed it, taken it out of the way, meaning it's no longer between you and him. And he has nailed it to the cross. What a promise. What a remarkable promise. Well, if that's the gospel, then I need to look at assault in light of the gospel. I need to boil down assault and abuse in light of the gospel. Let's, let's just think about what abuse is, what assault is, and from a spiritual standpoint. First of all, it's taking something not ours. If a, a man assaults a, a woman or a girl, or a man assaults a boy, young man. You're taking something from them, something that is their life, their identity, part of, part of who they are. You're taking some, it's theft. It's wanting what someone else has. It's envy. It's considering somebody else as less important than I am. It's selfish pride. What I want is more important than what I know that it would, might do to you or even for me to even care what it would do to you. It's driven by my out-of-control urge, the depth of my desire. I'm compelled like Amnon last week. It's lust. It's done manipulatively and in secret most of the time. It's full of deceit and dishonesty. It's just one more example of what the New Testament calls porneia, which is the most common word for sexual immorality um, that we see in the New Testament. Regardless of how abuse takes place, regardless of how assault takes place, it all looks different, but fundamentally it is selfish, disrespectful, immoral, envious, deceitful theft. It is injurious to the recipi recipient, it's odious in the sight of God, and it angers him. The problem, in part, is that sexual contact outside marriage is so common today that many people justify sexual contact as long as it wasn't by force. Many people look at sexual contact outside marriage and say, well, as long as I didn't physically restrain her, you know, as long as I didn't force the activity, uh, then maybe it's not so bad. I mean, after all, everybody does that stuff. That's not what God says. God declares that naked and unashamed one flesh relationships are to exist only between those who are married to one another, male and female. That's his provision for the naked and unashamed one flesh relationship. And 1 Samuel 15, 29 says, God does not lie. He does not change his mind. He is not a human being that he would change his mind. It's still that way. So, on the one hand, I've got the gospel, 
this free offer of eternal life to all who believe. And on this other hand, I've got sins that are quite odious in the sight of God and quite harmful to people. So my question would be, well then, how do those wash? How do I apply the gospel in this situation? How, how do I think through both the injustice and unrighteousness of assault and at the same time think about this remarkably gracious God? And I'm just going to mention a few things that come to my mind at least. First, God promises vengeance on the ungodly. When we look at assault, uh, what I think I need to start with is that God promises vengeance on the ungodly. His justice is better than ours. He says in Romans 12, 17 through 21, never pay back evil for evil. Never take your own revenge. Leave room for God's wrath. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Be not overcome by evil, overcome evil with good. There is this ethic that basically says when you've been badly harmed by somebody, leave it with me. I'm reliable and trustworthy and I'll take care of it, mark my words, because it offended me before it offended you. Remember, 1 Samuel 16 also tells us that God doesn't look on the outward appearance of a man, but he looks on the heart. So God sees the abuse before it happens. God sees the assault while it is in development, which for some people is over the period of months. God sees the whole thing, and he is already enraged by it long before it happens. And he is a just judge. Secondly, abuse and assault are some of the sins for which Jesus took the nails. When Jesus was crucified for my sins and your sins, it included the sins of assault. If I'm a recipient of assault, I have to deal with that. If I'm a recipient of abuse, I have to realize, wait a minute, even more important, as terrible as it was what somebody did that hurt me so deeply, something far bigger, far more from God's perspective, is that Christ died for that. Let me not make the mistake of somehow thinking that because it was something I would never do, and no one I love would ever do anything like that, that I somehow think it's outside of the rest of the human body of sin. It's somehow outside of that. And folks, I've heard stories that would absolutely make a bald man's hair curl. Whatever you have seen and heard, I, I just, I have to say, in generally speaking, I wish it weren't the truth, but I would say that I've seen 95% of anything that you can throw I, there's always something. I still hear things, and I just shake my head. I think I, that one's beyond the pale. But the point, it is not beyond the pale of the cross. Third, if in fact God's forgiveness is available to an abuser, it should also be available from us, which, by the way, is not the same as saying there will be no consequences. We'll talk about that in a moment. But as one who's been a recipient, one of the things that's part of being set free is realizing that that old adage is so true that whenever I hold bitterness against somebody, whenever I hold their guilt in my hands, the one who's really hurt the worst is me. It eats me from the inside. That's really true. And judicially speaking in God's economy, what he says is forgive others the way you've been forgiven. So we have to talk about how do you forgive, but also recognize this is odious and that this deserves judgment? 
By the way, part of the reality of judgment on wickedness is that the church needs to be part of that. The church needs to be part of that. We'll talk about that in a moment. Watch a video with me again, if you would. This is once again Rachel Den Hollander. She is the former U.S. gymnast, Olympic gymnast, who uh, was the one who ultimately got the ball rolling against Larry Nasser, the doctor who assaulted more than 160 women who have come forward in court. There have been at least another 100 who have come forward so far. Uh, just listen to what she's talking about when she's talking about this balance, if you will, of forgiveness and justice. To examine that, we need to first properly define the term forgiveness. Forgiveness, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, is to give up resentment or a claim to requital. Requital, of course, is defined as retaliation, the idea of wanting to, to get back at someone. So forgiveness is giving up resentment and a claim to retaliation. There are two key things about this definition that will help us discover how forgiveness and justice intersect. In the definition of forgiveness, notice that the things being released are personal to me. That is, if I forgive, I am giving up my own personal resentment, my own personal bitterness. I am giving up my personal desire to retaliate. But justice... Justice is conformity to an outward standard. Justice is conformity to a standard that exists outside of my response. That standard of rightness does not go away if I release my resentment. That standard does not go away if I release my personal retaliation. Forgiveness is my personal, internal response to my abuser. So the first thing to realize is that justice is not dependent one way or another on how I respond because it is an outward standard that is followed. Justice is not dependent on my response. This means I can be bitter and retaliatory and still never see justice done because that outward standard is never met. Conversely, I can release personal resentment and I can extend forgiveness and the truth about what happened to me does not change. The need to conform to that standard of rightness does not go away. Releasing personal resentment does not minimize, it does not excuse, and it does not downplay what happened. The second dynamic is that because there is a moral lawgiver and there is that straight line, there is someone higher than me who is capable of meeting out full justice. And this higher authority, being the source of goodness, understands the evil better than I do and cares even more about justice than I do. And this is one of the areas where I believe Christian faith portrays the most beautiful and true picture of both forgiveness and justice. See, the Christian faith teaches that not only does God love, but because he loves, he is just. That he pours out wrath on what is evil because he cares and it matters to him. That evil is seen even more glaringly than we can see it. Very often the idea of God punishing and wrath is seen as something negative and vengeful. But what I want you to understand tonight is that punishment for evil, justice, does not happen because God doesn't love, but because he does. When my innocence was stolen as a young child, 
and again as a young teen. God saw that damage and said, this is evil and it matters. He said that before a jury said it, before my abuser was convicted, before societal response turned in my favor. God saw it first. And that bringing of justice is a demonstration of his love. God promises justice because he knows even more than I how horrific the damage from abuse is. And if you really think about it, would you want it any other way? Would a God who saw what is evil and did not care be trustworthy? Would he be loving? Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I want us to see a passage, the front, we're going to see the front end of it, and I'll mention the back end of it, but it'll make sense in a moment. But understand that what she is referring to, and what we're going to see here in 1 Corinthians 5, as well as in the back end of it, is that there's an idea throughout the whole Bible, and it comes up in a bunch of different ways, but it, the Bible speaks of God being a God of justice and loving kindness. He's a God of holiness, and he's a God of mercy. He's a God of righteousness, and he's a God of compassion. Sometimes I have conceived of it like a cross, where the vertical attribute of the cross is like his truth and holiness and righteousness and justice. It's the don't mess with God part. It's the part that when somebody reaches out and touches the ark as it's beginning to topple, he strikes them dead. That isn't just Old Testament God. That's our God. But I view that cross piece as that picture of his approachability and his mercy and his remarkable patient endurance with us. Look at this passage in 1 Corinthians 5. I'm going to read bits and pieces of it. Verse 1, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And by the way, I don't think it would have been hard for him to say, there is actually an immorality reported among you that, that is rarely named among the Gentiles, or that even the Gentiles would recognize as sin, and that is that a brother has assaulted his sister, or that a cousin has assaulted the cousin, or that a man has taken advantage of a woman with whom he works. You have become arrogant and not mourned instead that the one who did this deed would be removed from your midst. For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What he's referring to is an unrepentant man who has engaged in a sin that is odious in the sight of God, and certainly certainly not more odious than sexual assault. And, and Paul says the right thing to do if the church knows that's going on and being ignored is to put that person out because what they're doing is they're bringing, they're bringing what he later calls yeast, this leaven of unrighteousness into the congregation and it weakens the church. It deadens the witness of the church because the church is saying we can tolerate the holiness of God and the wickedness of man. And God's saying, no, you can't. Not in your midst, not as part of your assembly. 
There is a role that the church has. In fact, if you look at verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I didn't mean people, immoral people of this world. He's referring to, I didn't mean unbelievers. I didn't mean people who are immoral because they don't even know Christ or with the covetous or swindlers or idolaters because then you'd have to go out of the world. In other words, you're supposed to be in the world, but not of it. So what he's saying is, when I said don't associate with immoral people, I'm not talking about the guys and gals out there who don't know Christ. Of course you have to associate with them. How else are you going to bring testimony of Christ? But look at what he says. Actually, I wrote to you. He's referring to another letter before 1 Corinthians. Actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any any so-called brother, New American Standard says, it's actually um, one who is called brother. Don't associate with someone called a brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler. Don't even eat with such a one. In other words, if you have this person who is engaging in this sin that is a sin of a high hand in the face of God and then going about their fellowship in the body of Christ, don't even eat with such a one. That's one of the reasons why if we are in a position of sin that we have not addressed with with God, we ought not take part of the communion, which will be next week. We ought to realize that at times we have to let the communion pass because God has convicted us of something we haven't addressed. And what he's saying is don't fellowship with believers who are holding on to sinful patterns like immorality that shows up in this way. He says... He goes on to say, for what do I have to do with judging outsiders? He's back to that theme of, I'm not talking about people who are not Christians. I'm talking about those in the church. Do you not judge those within the church? In other words, Paul is saying, it's incredulous to me to think that a church would not know they have a job that includes judgment. Those who are outside, God judges. But for you, he goes on and says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. The church has a role to play. And that role to play involves our being able to speak to the sin and address the sin when we become aware of it. But not only that, it also involves us cooperating, cooperating with authorities, cooperating with authorities because sometimes what begins as a church matter ultimately has become a matter of the state. The reality is when 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, don't go, don't go before human courts, it's talking about civil matters. It's saying, let the, let the body, let the, let the leaders, let whoever is wise among you decide these matters that are civil. But if it's criminal, chapter 13 of Romans says, the state, the, the governor, the, as First Peter calls it, he, bears the, he doesn't bear the sword for no reason. He bears the sword for the purpose of correcting wickedness, responding to, to wickedness. So what would this combination of justice and mercy look like in the case of abuse. First, God will bring to judgment everything done in secret. We can rest on that. Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says, fear God, keep his commandments. This applies to every person for God will bring every act to judgment, whether hidden, uh, everything that is hidden, whether good or evil. God will bring to judgment. So the person who's a recipient needs to realize God is going to take care of this. I really can rest. I can let go of my charge against them and leave it to God. Secondly, God treats severely those who harm the young. Luke 17, verses 1 and 2 says, It's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. 
It would be better if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. God doesn't mess around with this. The scripture actually makes it plain that there are various levels of judgment. And I believe that some of them like this is one of these ones where God says, I bring out special judgment on this. Third, God even judges believers whose attitude and behavior show a disregard for the holiness of God. Hebrews 10, 26, and then skipping to 29 says, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Folks, this is New Testament. This is talking about people who have been sanctified. He's not talking about heaven and hell judgment. He's made that plain elsewhere. This is where we just don't know God very well. We tend to think we hear the word judgment, we automatically think hell. God's taking care of hell for the believer. But what he's saying is there is still a consequence that someone bears when they disregard the holiness of God. And this is one area where that has happened massively. Also, we know that God judges unbelievers. Not only does he judge them in the sense of unbelievers go to hell, that's what the Bible teaches, but notice that he judges them for what they actually did, and their judgment is according. Revelation 12, 11, and 12 said, Then I saw a great white throne. The great white throne is a judgment for people outside of Christ. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. That's a picture of his holiness, and his justice is so great that the earth and sky know they can't stand in his presence. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. This is reminding us again of the picture in Hebrews that tells us that for everyone there is judgment appointed once after death. This idea of a Hindu cycle of life is certainly uh, for cartoons, but not for real people. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. God is going to judge people in accordance with what they've done. That happens to be true, by the way, for believers and unbelievers. And at the same time, God can be trusted even in the middle, even in the reality of having been harmed by others. So many places the Scripture teaches us this, but Psalm 40 comes to my mind. A few of the verses, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined me he, to me and heard my cry. He brought me out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. Oh, I have not concealed your loving kindness and truth from the great congregation, for you, O oh Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and truth will continually preserve me. Evils beyond number have surrounded me, and my heart has failed. Be pleased, O oh Lord, to deliver me. Folks, this is a prayer of somebody going through tremendous assault of a different sort to be sure, but, but somebody who is finding in the arms of God their sufficient strength. Also, a reminder that part of dealing with justice and mercy is that God does extend mercy to the repentant. 
Ezekiel 33 says, verse 11, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. That turn from his way, that's the word repent. That he would turn away from where he had been going and move towards life, which for a person who has done something odious, it's acknowledging that if the circumstances are such that that would be warranted, at least before God. And if it's something that happened 15 or 20 years ago and you would cause more harm to go to the person, and I have seen some situations where that's the case, then lay it before the Lord and just be open to addressing it if God puts you in a position where you must. 2 Peter 3.9 kind of echoes that. It's, he sa it says, the Lord is not slow about his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God God's goal is not to bust people's chops, but he will bust people's chops. And he will address wisely and rightly these things that have happened to us. And lastly, I mentioned the church must support the right of the state to punish evil. Romans 13, 1 through 5, every person is, in subjection, is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. They who have opposed will receive condemnation on themselves, for rulers are no cause for fear for good behavior but evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good. You will have praise from the same, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one practicing evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but for conscience sake. If I were to summarize all of this for these two weeks, this awareness of abuse and trying to think it through biblically, I would just say these things. Being set free for the one who's abused involves reaching out to the Lord first to acknowledge what has happened and name it. Identify it. Grieve over it. If necessary, and sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. I've known people who've told me, yeah, I went through some things like that, but God's just done some healing work. And he just didn't choose to have to use anybody with it. Other people have found that the presence of people to help them is a, a great thing. We have these brochures that you can give to people you know who may be struggling with this. You may have a daughter, you may have a, a girlfriend or somebody else or, or for you. Uh, in fact, when the, the people up here praying, up here to pray, we'll have these to hand out, plus we'll have them in the home center. Um, we want to give you resources where you can get help we know it all comes from the Lord. The, the real healing, the real transference comes from knowing him better. But we want to be a resource to you as a church. Secondly, for the one who's been abused, there is a need to face what we've done. Certainly with God. And then as you pray and as you seek his face, ask him to show you if there's anything that needs to be done in the way of either rest, restitution or restoration. Many times the answer is no. Sometimes it's just admitting. Um... 25 years ago, I sent a check for six times what the windows cost at my sixth grade school. I'd been under conviction for however many years that was that I had, the principal brought me into the office and said, somebody told me they saw you on a bicycle riding and shooting BB, uh, BB guns at, at the church, and I mean at the school, and we have holes that we have to replace. It's going to be the grand total of the amount of money, all of it, and it was just more money than I could even imagine. 
And uh, I said, no, of course not. Of course I didn't do that. I just lied through my teeth. Oh, by the way, that's another one of the sins to add to the IOU. Um, but 25 years ago, shortly before I came here, uh, I don't know how, but the Lord brought it back to my mind. And um, I wanted to make restitution, so I wrote him a letter, and I put Mark Carey's name on it. I said, uh, <laughs> I said, years ago when I was visiting your fine town of Corpus Christi, I popped some windows, and I... Uh, I just feel like the least I should do. No, I didn't do that. I wish I had thought of that. But, <laughs> but I wrote him and I explained, you, the, the principal at the time, and I gave them his name, had accused me rightly, and I lied about it. And I'm very sorry. And uh, I know that I can't undo that, but I want to do anything I can to just restore what I can. And here's a check. Use it for maintenance or something. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know what it is for you. But I do know that we have a God who cares about these matters, and he doesn't mess around. He is full of grace, but he's also full of justice. And that's the kind of God I'm grateful we serve. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being such a holy and righteous, true God, a God in whom we can trust. Thank you, Lord, for being a God who um, ministers your grace to us, but also lets us face what's real. I pray your healing, Father, on those who have been undergone the kind of abuse and assault of which we've been speaking. I pray, Lord, that you would minister the peace that lets them know, like that picture of that little girl, that if they know Christ, they wear a crown. They are his daughter. They are your daughter, Lord. And, and that means that um, their identity is not what someone did to them. That's just what someone did to them. Um, their identity is is who you have made them to be and who, in whom you have made them dwell. And God, I just pray for a full restoration that people would experience the joy and the freedom because, Father, I believe you're going to use it in their lives and our lives as a congregation. We love you, Lord, and we just pray you would continue to make the gospel thrive among us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.